CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. Hey, there's a new rover on Mars exploring the terrain. I watched the thing coming down. Well, I watched them at NASA control room talking about the thing coming down, and it was very exciting. This is the kind of thing that makes me tingle. Missions to the furthest reaches of our capabilities to further our understanding of stuff. You know, this little uh, thing, Perseverance, it's going to roam around this lake bed, this ancient lake bed there on Mars looking for evidence of ancient microbial life. And then somehow it's going to get those Martian rocks back to Earth. FedEx or some damn thing. I don't know how it's going to work, but somehow it's going to scoop those rocks up and, and it's going to get a, go on another rocket and the rocket's going to come all the way back here. That stuff just makes me excited when we contemplate what we can do and what we are capable of. And, you know, I'm, I'm using we very loosely here. Obviously, I had nothing to do with it. But we as a species, let's say. And it's hard to, um, it's hard sometimes to feel good about our species because of all the bad things we do. But in that case, I'm using we very loosely as well. Like, you know, I feel bad about all the people, all the, all the people who do bad shit in the world. So why not feel good for some of the people who did something good? You know what I mean? Take a little credit for that. Tip of the hat uh, to humanity, and I'm including myself in that description. And humankind is somewhat of what we're exploring here in Frankenstein on Obscure, because we have this weird schism between Dr. Frankenstein and the big buddy. Frankenstein himself describes the Big Buddy as being something other than human, even though it was cobbled together with human parts. You know, is a chicken nugget still chicken? That's essentially at the heart of this book. 
they still call it a chicken nugget. Maybe they, you know, legally, I guess they're allowed to do it. But Frankenstein makes a distinction between humanity and the creature he has created. And interestingly, as we pick up again, I think the Big Buddy is also making that distinction. The Big Buddy does not seem to feel himself a part of the human race. And yeah, I'm going to drop the H every once in a while. Why not? It's late at night. I'm feeling spicy. This is a rare late night recording of Obscure. And when I say late night, I'm not kidding. It is 8 p.m. here. Dinner is over. You know, the rover's on Mars. There's a whole new uh, Martian day probably starting right now as we finish up ours here on Earth. And the last time we were with the big buddy, he, you know, was kind of giving us the day by day of his life to that point. You know, he was born, ate some berries, read Milton, and now he has found, you know, he got stoned, not like a high, but people were stoning him. You know, they were like, oh God, big buddy, yuck. And then they were like, ew, we got to get rid of this thing. And then somehow word didn't escape the little village that he found, that there was a monster roaming around. Uh, and then when last we left him, he had found a little hovel, he says, just a little, like a, like a shack or something that was so low that I could with difficulty sit upright in it. And as there's a dirt floor uh, and it's raining and snowing, but it's dry. And although the wind entered it by innumerable chinks, I found it an agreeable asylum from the snow and rain. That's where we left it last time. So we'll pick up again. And again, Big Buddy's relating the story to Victor Frankenstein. He goes, here then I retreated and lay down happy to have found a shelter, however miserable, from the inclemency of the season and still more from the barbarity of man. So you see, Big Buddy is making that distinction between what he feels himself to be and mankind, but even more tellingly, the barbarity of mankind. Because at this point, you know, he's talked about, I was born with good intentions. Like, you know, I was born with a little halo over my goddamn head. And then everybody started being mean to me. And it turned me. So at this point, he's saying, like, I'm a benevolent soul. And, I, and he's appealing to his creator, Victor Frankenstein, in this whole story, right? This whole story is a proposition. He's saying, I want to remain a benevolent soul if you will help me to do so. And we don't quite know what the proposition is yet, although I think I have an idea. I, you know, my guess is he wants Victor Frankenstein to make him a little lady friend, you know, somebody that he can cuddle with on those cold nights up there in the Alps. I don't know if that's what's going to happen or not, but we'll see. As soon as morning dawned, I crept from my kennel that I might view the adjacent cottage and discover if I could remain in the habitation I had found. It was situated against the back of the cottage and surrounded on the sides which were exposed by a pigsty and a clear pool of water. One part was open, and by that I had crept in, but now I covered every crevice by which I might be perceived with stones and wood, yet in such a manner that I might move them on occasion to pass out. All the light I enjoyed came through the sty, and that was sufficient for me. 
Um, so there's a little uh, humility here, you know? I mean, you look, a couple of days ago, he was sleeping down in a van by the river, eating berries and roasting roots and twigs and figuring out fire. So, you know, to you and me, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a humble abode. To him, you know, it's fine. It's fine. You know, there's a temptation to go, oh, he thinks he's no better than the beasts of the of the earth, the dogs and the pigs and, and whatnot. But, you know, he doesn't have this hierarchical ordering in his mind that man reigns supreme. Why would he? If anything, he's just said the barbarity of man. So to him, for him to be compared to a pig, he's probably like, yeah, fine. Pigs are cool. Pigs don't throw shit at me. Having thus arranged my dwelling and carpeted it with clean straw, I retired. For I saw the figure of a man at a distance, and I remembered too well my treatment the night before to trust myself in his power. I had first, however, provided for my sustenance for that day by a loaf of coarse bread, which I purloined, and a cup with which I could drink, more conveniently than from my hand, of the pure water which flowed by my retreat. The floor was a little raised, so that it was kept perfectly dry, and by its vicinity to the chimney of the cottage it was tolerably warm. Being thus provided, I resolved to reside in this hovel until something should occur which might alter my determination. It was indeed a paradise compared to the bleak forest. That's what I just said. He's living in a van down by the river. My former residence, the rain-dropping branches and dank earth. I ate my breakfast with pleasure and was about to remove a plank to procure myself a little water when I heard a step. And looking through a small chink, I beheld a young creature with a pail on her head passing before my hovel. The girl was young and of gentle demeanor, unlike what I have since found cottagers and farmhouse servants to be. So here we go, the innocence of the young. I mean, he's innocent himself, right? He himself is young. He's just a babe in the woods. A couple days ago, literally, friends, literally. And now he's out there and he sees a little girl and he's like, oh yeah, she's nice. I'm nice, she's nice. Maybe we could be friends. Of course, you know, Look at what happened to poor William. That in it, you know, that how that innocence ended. Now we don't know for sure yet that it was the big buddy who strangled the life out of poor William. But we know from Frankenstein's point of view, hey, keep this guy clear from children. He might, you know, he might be he might get violent. You know, it's like a dog when you pass a strange dog and you don't know how friendly it's gonna be. The big buddy, you know, the dog probably thinks, hey, I'm just a dog, I'm friendly. And then, you know, he sees a kid he doesn't like, next thing you know, its face is ripped off. Yet she was meanly dressed. Okay, so he's just said how nice she looks, but she was meanly dressed. A coarse blue petticoat and a linen jacket being her only grab. Her fair hair was plaited, but not adorned. She looked patient, yet sad. I lost sight of her. In about a quarter of an hour, she returned bearing the pail, which was now partly filled with milk. As she walked along, Seemingly incommoded by the burden, a young man met her, whose countenance expressed a deeper despondence. Uttering a few sounds with an air of melancholy, he took the pail from her head and bore it to the cottage himself. She followed, and they disappeared. 
Presently I saw the young man again, with some tools in his hand, cross the fields behind the cottage, and the girl was also busied, sometimes in the house and sometimes in the yard. On examining my dwelling, I found that one of the windows of the cottage had formerly occupied a part of it, but the panes had been filled up with wood. In one of these was a small and almost imperceptible chink through which the eye could just penetrate. Through this crevice, a small room was visible, whitewashed and clean but very bare of furniture. In one corner, near a small fire, sat an old man, leaning his head on his hands in a disconsolate attitude. The young girl was occupied in arranging the cottage, but presently she took something out of a drawer, which employed her hands, and she sat down beside the old man, who, taking up an instrument, began to play, and to produce sounds sweeter than the voice of the thrush or the nightingale. Remember, this guy's an expert in bird song. Like, that's one of the first things he learned, was to separate the sparrow from the thrush, you know, to know what they sound like. So if this guy says, you know, he sounds sweeter than a thrush, kid, he knows what he's talking about. Mary, he knows what he's talking about. Expert in birds. Why don't you become an expert in birds? What are you an expert in? Other than poetry, anachronistic poetry. It was a lovely sight even to me, poor wretch, who had never beheld aught beautiful before. So, uh, never beheld aught beautiful before. I never seen nothing pretty before. I guess that's what he's saying. The silver hair and benevolent countenance of the aged cottager won my reverence, while the gentle manners of the girl enticed my love. He played a sweet, mournful air. Maybe she's not a kid, you know? Uh, uh, The girl was young and of gentle demeanor. He might mean that she's you know, like a young lady, a maiden. It's it's a little unclear to me. Uh, He played a sweet, mournful air, which I perceived drew tears from the eyes of his amiable companion, of which the old man took no notice until she sobbed audibly. He then produced a few sounds, and the fair creature, leaving her work, knelt at his feet. He raised her and smiled with such kindness and affection that I felt sensations of a peculiar and overpowering nature. They were a mixture of pain and pleasure, such as I had never before experienced, either from hunger or cold, warmth or food, and I withdrew from the window, unable to bear these emotions. You know what I think it is, guys? You know what I think he's feeling there? This is going to come as no surprise to you, because... I'm a softie at heart, but what I think he's feeling there is love. <laughs> it's just pure and simple love. <sighs> you know, not romantic love, just basic human love, empathy, the reception of one human soul from another. That's what I think he's experiencing there, and that confounds us, doesn't it? Because it imbues the big buddy with humanity after all. Why don't we take a quick break here on this spicy late night episode of Obscure. We'll return in just a moment. A 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Back on Obscure Late Night Edition, all your spicy Georgian reading here in one place for the evening. And I should add, uh, the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library is a little overheated right now as I speak. I mean, uh, I mean that literally. Snow has been falling uh, here all day, and somehow the heat got directed into the library in a stifling manner, and I'm feeling little beads of perspiration on my brow. So not only is it spicy, things are getting steamy as the big buddy experiences for the first time love. Soon after this, the young man returned, bearing on his shoulders a load of wood. The girl met him at the door, helped to relieve him of his burden, and taking some of the fuel into the cottage, placed it on the fire. Then she and the youth went apart in a nook of the cottage, and he showed her a large loaf and a piece of cheese. (laughs) He said loaf. (laughs) He said loaf. What a perv. She seemed pleased and went into the garden for some roots and plants, which she placed in water and then upon the fire. She afterwards continued her work whilst the young man went into the garden and appearing busily employed in digging and pulling up roots. After he had been employed thus about an hour, the young woman joined him and they entered the cottage together. The old man had, in the meantime, been pensive But on the appearance of his companions, he assumed a more cheerful air, and they sat down to eat. The meal was quickly dispatched. The young woman was again occupied in arranging the cottage. I mean, how big is the cottage that she has to keep arranging it? Sounds like it's just a little little thing, right? No, Barely any furniture. What is she arranging? The hell is she doing? The old man walked before the cottage in the sun for a few minutes, leaning on the arm of the youth. Nothing could exceed in beauty the contrast between these two excellent creatures. One was old, with silver hairs and a countenance beaming with benevolence and love. The younger was slight and graceful in his figure, and his features were molded with the finest symmetry. 
yet his eyes and attitude expressed the utmost sadness and despondency. The old man returned to the cottage, and the youth, with tools different from those he had used in the morning, directed his steps across the fields. So we don't know what the story is with these three. Is it one of their fathers? Is it both of their father? Are they brother and sister? And that's their dad, and they lost their mom, and that's why people are sad. You know, we don't know. We don't know what's going on. But the big buddy is, is observing this with wonder. He is observing tenderness and love and empathy and the whatever the opposite of uh, you know the experience that he had with humans before, whatever the opposite of bestiality is. That's what he's, oh, barbarity. Bestiality is, that's something else entirely. Guys, I did not mean bestiality. And I apologize, I meant barbarity. So it's a nice thing. We don't understand all the moroseness, but we certainly understand the tenderness. Night quickly shut in, but to my extreme wonder, I found that the cottagers had a means of prolonging light by the use of tapers, and was delighted to find that the setting of the sun did not put an end to the pleasure I experienced in watching my human neighbors. In the evening, the young girl and her companion were employed in various occupations, which I did not understand. Yeah, they're probably surfing the web. And the old man again took up the instrument which produced the divine sounds that had enchanted me in the morning. So soon as he had finished, the youth began, not to play, but to utter sounds that were monotonous and neither resembling the harmony of the old man's instrument nor the songs of the birds. I since found that he read aloud, but at the time I knew nothing of the science of words or letters. The family, after having been thus occupied for a short time, extinguished their lights and retired, as I conjectured, to rest. End of chapter three. I mean, not for nothing, but the youth there is entertaining the family just the same way I'm entertaining my podcast family by reading aloud. You know, you pick up a book, you read it aloud. It's a lost art, I'm telling you. The science of words and letters where you just, you do a little declamation. Is that the word, declamation? Let me go to my research machine. What does declamation mean? Declamation. Never used that word before. The action or art of declaiming a rhetorical exercise or set speech. Yeah, so yeah, basically what I'm saying, declamation. But also uh, the art of improvisation. And, you know, just as an aside, it's worth making a little aside here. Why not? Rush Limbaugh died this week. And I don't want to say anything in particular about the character of Rush Limbaugh. Um, I think that has been well documented, at least the character of his show. But the man could broadcast. Now, I listened for a time in my life to a lot of Rush Limbaugh. Why, Michael? Why would you do such a thing? Because I found it illuminating. I found it very interesting. I listened to a lot of conservative talk radio. It had the effect of making me even more of a liberal than I already am. But I, un- I, I certainly understand the genius. I mean, I don't, I, that was Rush Limbaugh. He created an ecosystem. He created a whole universe. In some ways, no different than uh, a novelist creates a universe. It was a, it was a universe of grievance, a bitter universe. 
where some where where people his listeners were always getting the shaft, you know, from the elites, from the mainstream media. And it's such a genius rhetorical device because who was he if not the elite in the mainstream media? I mean, he had the largest listenership in talk radio. Who was more of an elite? He had the ear of presidents, you know? Who was more of an elite than he? And yet, it's a rhetorical device we see over and over and over again. The idea of, I'm one of you. I'm sticking up for the little guy. And it's incredibly effective. So that's what I'm doing, you guys. I'm here for you, declaiming, sticking up for the little guy. That's me. All those people who felt like nobody understands that I love 18th century British literature. You know, the mainstream media just doesn't get it. Well, that's what I'm here for. You know, we're going we're gonna to stick it to people who don't read Mary Shelley and Thomas Hardy and such. I mean, he was a scumbag. All, in the end, he was a scumbag, Right. I said I wasn't going to say anything. In the end, he was a scumbag. And there's a a long essay by David Foster Wallace called, I think, Host or The Host or something that it, it ran years ago. And I read it over this week. And what I discovered, what I, I shouldn't say what I discovered. What I'm finally able to admit to myself is that I don't like David Foster Wallace's writing. Okay. That's one thing. That I, that's, a, that's a door that opened for me that I was willing to walk through, okay? It, it's, 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 uh, it's encyclopedic, and I don't mean that as a compliment. It's litany upon litany upon litany, and I find that Im- almost impossible to engage with. That being said, he's also incredibly incisive. And what he understands about conservative talk radio, and by extension Rush Limbaugh, who essentially invented conservative talk radio, is that the scumminess, the hatred, the bigotry, the misogyny, all of it was in a sense irrelevant because it was never about the message. It was, meaning the content, it was solely about the sensation, about provoking in the listener an emotional response. And whatever he, they, meaning the, the, you know, broadcasters, and in, this is particularly acute in conservative broadcasting, whatever they can say to provoke sensationalism in their listenership is good. It honestly doesn't really matter what it is they're saying. Now, there is an exception to that, which I will, which Foster, David Foster Wallace does not explain, but I will. The exception, here's the thing, they constructed a universe, and it is the universe that I described of grievance, specifically white grievance, and I'm sorry I've gone on a tangent, and we're probably not going to begin chapter four, okay? It's, you know, I told you this was going to get spicy, it's getting spicy. They constructed a narrative, they constructed a, let's, for lack of a better word, a, you know, cinematic universe, in which they are the aggrieved party, and whatever... Um, the, the forces that are aggrieving them, the elites, the mainstream media, this, um, the liberals, and that's a very broad term to encompass anybody who, who 
is not them, um, they're all putting the boot on the neck of the little guy. So you can, as long as you stay in that narrative, you are rewarded in conservative, in the conservative ecosystem that Rush really helped create. But if you step outside of that, you are punished and punished severely. Now we see that writ large in the censorship, censure movement that's occurring right now in the Republican Party against the people who voted to uh, impeach Donald J. Trump, who is a creature and product of this ecosystem. And the reason that they're being censured is because they are stepping outside of the conservative cinematic universe. And they're saying, wait a minute, maybe one of our own, maybe a guy in our own Justice League did something shitty and needs to be punished for that. Well, that is taboo in the conservative cinematic universe because it ends up aligning you with the forces of, you know, Hydra, which is anybody outside of that increasingly, or I should say decreasingly small conservative cinematic universe. And it's making the people within that universe much more rigid in their thinking and much more hidebound to dogma. So there's some examples of this. The most notable one that I can think of from that universe of of conservative broadcasters is Glenn Beck, who for a minute there stuck his finger up to the winds and said, hey, maybe I shouldn't have done all the terrible things that I did, and was kind of doing a mea culpa tour, which in my mind culminated with him and Samantha B getting together and shaking hands and hugging it out and the whole thing. And the blowback to Glenn Beck was so severe that he quickly retreated and has become, once again, a raving lunatic because... What does that create? What does raving and lunacy create? Sensation. And his entire little media empire relied on sensation. There were people like me who looked at Glenn Beck when he first came out and did this and said, well, is he being sincere? Is that a real thing that's happening? And I suspect, and I could be wrong about this, I suspect in his heart of hearts. Now, you know what? I'm going to take that back. What I suspect happened is that Glenn Beck... Uh, thought there might be an opportunity to expand his brand by moving a little bit more to the center. But people like me, remembering what Glenn Beck had been doing for the last 10, 15 years, said, yeah, I think I'm going to take a pass on this. And the people who were with him said, fuck you, Glenn Beck, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And he had to retreat. Rush Limbaugh was the creator of this, of this entire structure, this entire narrative structure. And he never retreated from it. The scaffolding only grew stronger. And there's people who go, well, he was a generous guy and blah, 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 blah. Who gives a shit? Because one of the things that I think is worth exploring in this world, meaning our world, the world of media and and celebrity, and in particular broadcasting, is the difference between the public person and the private person. And part of me suspects that for many, many broadcasters, the public person is the essential person. The private person is actually the persona. And I think that was true with Rush Limbaugh. 
Now, can we relate that back to Frankenstein? Sure. Because Frankenstein himself created a tiny little universe. You know, he was God. He's playing God and created a being. Created, in a sense, um, something out of nothing. And the, and the something that he created is, in so many ways, the perfect reflection of himself. Deformed. Um, misunderstood. Sorrowful. And prone to, perhaps, violence. So that's where we are. That's what I'll leave you with. Uh, maybe we didn't get as far in the book this time, but things did get spicy, as promised. We got a new rover on Mars. And it is time for this Georgianologist to retire for the evening. So, let's leave it there. Next time we'll start chapter four of the second volume of Frankenstein. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedren. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in a addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.